You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Lauren Lee Chen, and I'm so glad you've joined me and my co-host, Aaron Fishman, for this episode of On the NBA Beat. On this episode, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the Cleveland Cavaliers, who have at times looked like one of the elite teams in the NBA after their off-season addition of superstar Donovan Mitchell, but are currently in the midst of a four-game losing streak. To help us understand this enigmatic team, we've enlisted the help of special guest Justin Rowan, host of the Chase Down podcast. Brief programming note before we get started— this episode was recorded before Cleveland's recent shorthanded loss against the Minnesota Timberwolves, but keeping that in mind, let's start the show. Hey Justin, thanks for joining us again. It's been way too long since we've had you on. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it, and uh, it, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be back, and it's it's great to see that the Cavs are back as well. I think there might be a bit of a coincidence there on when you guys want to bring me back. <laughs> yeah, it's been over five years since we last had you on the show. I promise we'll be mainly focusing on the positive, but I want to start off talking about these last three games for the Cavs. Three straight losses, and I think you would agree all three of them winnable games, mm-hmm. um, especially Monday's game against the Clippers where they were up 112 to 100 in the fourth, ended up losing that game 119 to 117. The game against the Kings on Wednesday, another winnable game. And then Friday's game against the Warriors saw Steph just go God mode in the last three minutes of the game, something I'm sure you're used to seeing (laughs) in the Cavs history. Are those last three games, the late game execution, concerning to you at all? For what it's worth, they also have five clutch wins this season, including two OT wins against the Celtics. So just a lot of close games so far already. Yeah, no kidding. And I I mean, there are some concerns, but like this is the kind of stuff you want to learn, especially with a young team, is you're going to get the best shot from all of these teams every single night. You're not sneaking up on anybody. And really, it's stress testing the team, right? Like you, you, all these teams throw different looks at you. Um, The Warriors obviously are are defending champions. Uh, I think their, their experience came through. Clippers one was a little frustrating, especially when you kind of get that last two minute report and and see kind of all the massive swings uh, that occurred because of missed calls. But they put themselves in that position by not playing well, right? Like they they had a 14 point lead and you can focus on that stuff. But I, I think there's enough reasons to kind of look internally and things that can be addressed. Now, obviously, Clippers and Kings games, both of those were third game in four nights. Uh, You're on the West Coast. That's always a little bit difficult. I think it's even more difficult when you look at the time change this week. Like that Clippers start time, that's on your internal clock being at 11.30 p.m. Eastern (laughs) prior to the the time change, right? Like those are the kind of things that that can kind of sneak up on you or you can forget about in the grand scheme of things. But ultimately, I, I think that there's lessons and takeaways from these games. And if you're going to have these hiccups in the regular season, which every team's going to, 
it's probably better for it to occur against Western Conference teams where these games aren't really counting for double in the standings. Yeah, and I think a lot of analysts were, especially before this week, were pegging the Cavs to be on the level of joining that top tier in the East. As you said, they were number two in the November 8th edition of John Schumann's NBA Power Rankings. Do you think they're there yet? Or do you think there's still growth that is necessary before they join the Celtics and the Bucks in what most consider to be that top tier? I think for the regular season, they have more than enough to be in that tier and and to earn a home court berth. I I think that should be really the priority. I mean, I think the floor of what you're hoping for is to avoid the play-in tournament, but I I think they have more than enough talent to get home court in the first round, and that should be the goal. If you're talking about translating that to the postseason, I'm always going to give the benefit of the doubt to the teams that have been there. Like, experience matters so much. And learning how to win four rounds of playoff basketball, learning how to game plan for the same team night after night over a seven game series. Like that's something you don't do in the regular season. Like teams don't game plan to the same extent they do in the playoffs because there's four games in a week. Usually that task gets delegated to assistant coaches and you don't see those game to game adjustments the the same way that you do in the playoffs. So I'm going to give the edge to teams like Milwaukee and Boston uh, when it comes to the playoffs. But in the regular season, I do think they are up in that tier. And I think you look at Boston, you look at Philadelphia, Miami, a lot of those teams, even Toronto, teams that are kind of all considered in that mix, they're all going through hiccups. They've all had those setbacks. They've all had issues. I think winning those two games against Boston is going to be really important for the tiebreaker and for kind of how the standings are going to shake out at the end. But in in terms of regular season, I absolutely believe that the Cavs should be mentioned in that tier, despite a few disappointing losses. Yeah, and as you said, despite those losses, currently as of recording time, first in net rating at plus 7.9 points per 100 possessions, second in defensive rating, fourth in offensive rating. So those are all metrics that obviously you like to see. I think coming into this season, the big question was whether they have that alpha dog superstar that is usually necessary for a team with a final shot to have and the answer to that question so far has been donovan mitchell really stepping up his game the Cavs haven't really had an offensive superstar on his level since lebron james left last season they had such a balanced scoring at times depending on the injury situation and availability they might have had six or seven guys averaging between 13 and 20 points per game. What is having a guy like Donovan Mitchell, who you can rely on to get a bucket, change for this team? The biggest difference from Donovan Mitchell and what the Cavs probably would have been pre-Mitchell trade is Mitchell kind of combines a lot of what you were looking for from multiple players, right? Like Colin Sexton is a good scorer. He's a a very good scorer. And I I think his passing was maybe a little underrated, but it's not at the same level as Mitchell, right? Like a lot of the actions that they were probably planning on running for Ochai Abaji, like kind of pin downs and all that kind of stuff, you can run for Mitchell. But you also have the added benefit of his playmaking, the volume three-point shooting, uh, the improvement on defense, which I, I think was one of the things they were banking on prior to that trade. The fact that he brings all of those elements into one player is a massive 
boost for the Cavs. And and I, I think it's helped them kind of weather the storm early in the season, uh, especially with Garland going out. And uh, we talked about it on the podcast, like even when they were eight and one, we hadn't really felt like they had played a great game start to finish yet. Like there, there were still a lot of guys that were kind of underperforming with the exception of Donovan Mitchell. So I, I think right now you have to feel pretty good about it. Like you mentioned that they're still number one in net rating uh, point differential. They're right up there. And there's still a lot of growth, right? And when you're going through an early season learning curve, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose games as you kind of go through those rough stretches, but it does make it possible. And you are prone to losing some of these games. And I think that's what we've seen, right? Like there's been games with growing pains that ultimately they came away with the win. I think a lot of those early season games, as you mentioned, they have five clutch wins and three clutch losses. Like that's indicative to me of a team that's trying to figure things out. So having Mitchell obviously raises the floor of this team, but I do think ultimately what they want to have is a balanced attack, right? Like they're, they're trying to figure out that hierarchy with Garland, Mitchell, and Mobley in particular, uh, and having them all kind of responsible for initiating the offense. I think the one thing with Mitchell that might be concerning, maybe not, is the huge number of minutes he's logging. He's leading mm-hmm. the league right now uh, at 39.1. That's five minutes more than his previous career high average for a season. It's still early season, and it's probably more than significantly skewed by the fact that the Cavs have played three overtime games already and the fact that possibly he was covering a little bit during the stretch when Garland was out. But would you say you expect his average minutes to come in closer to 36 or 37 as the season goes on? Yeah, I I mean, I'd rather see them down kind of like 34, 35, right? Like, I I think that's where you would want it to be. And I, I think... That was the hope, right? Is that when you have multiple playmakers, Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, Karis LeVert, Howell Neto, and eventually Ricky Rubio, that you're going to be able to reduce the load. Because bringing Mitchell into this season, he had only had one year in his career where he had above average true shooting percentage. Like, this is someone that could get very hot, but the overall efficiency wasn't there. And I think what their hope was, was if we're able to take some of the load off of his shoulders, if we have other playmakers around, if we have multiple bigs that that can free him up in the pick and roll, it's going to improve his efficiency and it's going to improve his ability to contribute on the defensive end. And so far, both of those bets have paid off. But if you're playing him this kind of minutes, there's going to be wear and tear. The ability to consistently give effort on both ends of the court is going to be diminished. So I, I think you do want to see those minutes come down. I'm very curious right now about what's going on with Howell Neto. He has been available to play the last few games, but he hasn't. He did take a spill in the Detroit game, actually a couple spills, and he was questionable going into that game uh, with an ankle injury. So I don't know if this is a situation where he's got a nagging injury and he's technically available if he needs to play, but they're not playing him just to kind of play it safe with him. But I would like to see, you know, having a backup point guard in there. I think that would really make a big difference just to to have another guy that can initiate, get these guys some off-ball looks and, and give them more of a rest. Because I, I do think you're, you're going to see fatigue with both Mitchell and Garland with some of the minutes they're playing. Hey, Justin, it's Aaron here. Like Lauren said, we're really happy to have you back on. I want to focus on the defensive side of things. So going into the season, there was some concern about pairing Garland and Mitchell in the backcourt 
again, defensively, just because of their smaller stature. Now, you did say that Mitchell was expected to improve defensively by the Cavaliers brass, and he certainly has so far this season. Plus, of course, you have Mobley and Allen, elite rim protectors, behind them. I know Garland hasn't played a ton of games this season due to injury, but he is back now. What have you seen so far defensively from that pairing, and what adjustments, if any, do you think either of those guys have to make? So far, I think it's looked good. Like I, I think Donovan Mitchell, part part of the gamble there is, yeah, he he's shorter, be listed at either six three to six one, depending on where you're looking at, right? Uh, I, I know he he commented on how he's grown a little bit since that initial six one measurement, uh, but he's got a big wingspan and he, he's a stronger player as well. And we've seen that work before. I mean, Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet beat a lot of very good teams playing together and both of them are, are sub six feet, right? So Garland and Mitchell have a, a little more size than that. And and Darius, like if you look at his EPM uh, last year, I think he was in the 62nd percentile defensively and there's going to be issues with him, right? Like be, because he's six one, there's going to be physical limitations. I think what you want to see from him is similar to the growth Steph had on the defensive end where, yeah, if he gets switched onto a small forward, they're going to be able to take advantage of that. But play sound positional basketball, get steals, have active hands, be in position. And I think that's really what's being asked of both Mitchell and Garland is to be in position because the backline support is so good that if you're not blowing your assignments and, and you're at least making guys work, we feel confident that as a team, the defensive rating is going to be good. And and so far, that has been the case. I think it's helpful when you have Karis LeVert really buying in on the defensive end of the floor. Dean Wade is a very good defensive player. Unfortunately, he wasn't active against the Warriors, but he's been contributing there as well. Isaac Okoro is in the worst offensive slump I have ever seen from him uh, to start the year. But, you know, if you can get him back on track, he is a very good on-ball defensive player. So I, I think the hope is that as a unit, you can make up for some of the individual deficiencies. And I think they've done a good job of that so far this year. Yeah, we might talk about Okoro a little bit later if we have time. 28% from the floor, not going to yeah. get it done. But you just mentioned Donovan Mitchell's strength. And Lauren and I were watching the video of a Zach Lowe podcast, and I believe it was Jason Tatum whom Mitchell was fronting in in one of those wins over the Celtics. It might have been Jalen Brown. I think it was Tatum. But the strength that Mitchell exhibited on those plays to deny the ball entry, it was really impressive and seemingly very effective for the Cavaliers' defense. Absolutely. And I think because defense isn't captured to the same extent that offense is in the NBA, like we almost like reduce it to memes where it's like, okay, well, you know, if a six, four guy is guarding a six, seven player, you're going to walk down the court. The six, seven player is going to say, I have a height advantage. I'm going to shoot over you. I must be awarded two points. And and that's not how it works. Like if you look at at some of the best Kevin Durant defenders in, in his time in the NBA, six, four Tony Allen, who was given up like seven inches because he is able to get up into his airspace and be physical with him. Even Chris yeah. Paul has done a good job as well, right? And Donovan Mitchell came into the NBA. It's hilarious to look at the Draft Express scouting report, but he was basically listed as a 3 and D guard. And his first two years in the NBA, he was a good defensive player. But then 
as he took on more offensive responsibility, you could see that effort was waning. Uh, the, the playoff deficiencies he had were obvious to see. You look at the way that Jalen Brunson went off, uh, Reggie Jackson went off, Jamal Murray went off. Like all of that was directly his man. And I, I think him buying in on the defensive end and, and the Cavs giving him enough support on offense that he can continue to give that effort is one of the kind of the, the gambles that you're making with this trade. But I think so far he is really bought in and uh, he's been a legit game changer on defense. And I think having two switchable bigs that, that can really get out in space that, that can make things difficult it allows kind of the, that help defense and the things that Mitchell can do and the anticipation he has to really kind of shine through more than what we saw in Utah where you had Rudy Gobert playing drop and as the rest of the team got older, the, the structural integrity of that defense just continued to wane. I think that's well said. Uh, maybe I shouldn't get into Donovan Mitchell's head here, but it seemed like maybe he got a little bit too comfortable with having Gobert behind him and a lot of the guards funneled the action to Gobert because he's going to block or alter whatever um, gets by the guards. But regardless, in this new situation, Mitchell is clearly bought in and he's putting in a lot of effort defensively and, and it's reaping dividends. The other guy that I mentioned, Darius Garland, so he's now returned from injury. He's clearly still settling in. He's been struggling with his shot a little bit. Or a lot. One for nine against the Kings. Five of 19 against Golden State. So it's a small sample size, but just shooting 35% so far for the season. And this is also an unfair stat, but they're 6-0 without him and 2-4 and with him. Mm-hmm. I assume you're not too worried about Garland, given the growth that we saw from him last season and how talented of a young player he is. But... What kind of adjustments do you need to see from him for him to to be where he needs to be for this team to succeed at the level that we know they can? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing, and so it came out after the Kings game that that he was under the weather, uh, that he's been playing through the flu. So I'm I'm thinking that that's likely been an issue because you look at his first games back, he was fantastic against Boston. He was very good against the Lakers. And honestly, he was pretty good against the Clippers, except for kind of the the closing stretch in the fourth quarter, which one of those uh, two kind of crucial turnovers he had was already ruled that it it should have been a foul. But uh, he just needs to be better, right? Like, And and whether it's a result of feeling under the weather and and pressing, like the fact remains, he is pressing out there, right? Like he, he doesn't look comfortable. He doesn't look like he's in a rhythm, but... I'm not concerned, especially because of the fact that like he looked so good in all those other games when he wasn't under the weather. So maybe that that's going to turn around. But really, when you look at these close losses that they've had, if you get a B minus game out of Darius Garland in any of these, you, you probably come away with, with a pretty comfortable win. Right. And I think him being better and being himself again is going to make things easier for everybody. It makes things easier for Mitchell. I think it's not a coincidence that since Garland has come back, all of a sudden Evan Mobley is looking a lot uh, better offensively and is having more kind of high output games there. So he makes things easier for a lot of guys and I'm not worried about it. He's already kind of proven enough to me uh, that that I don't think uh, the last like year and a half have been some sort of aberration. 
Yeah, and just to clarify, so there's no particular adjustment you think he needs to make with regard to playing alongside a high-volume guy like Mitchell? I think there is inevitably going to be an adjustment, and I, I think it actually will come up more, and we've seen it. I think it comes up more in crunch time. I think mm-hmm. in the normal flow of the game, like in preseason, when we saw the other games they've played, like both of them are so used to playing both on and off ball and and they're such unselfish players that that really kind of works when they're flowing and and the game is loose but what we're seeing is when the game is tight late in the fourth quarter they really slow it down and and sometimes they don't even get within the the three-point arc until there's like eight seconds left on the shot clock and i think one of the things that really jumps out to me is that the Cavs need to maintain pace because they are an unconventional lineup. And what makes it work is that all the cuts, all the actions, everything is done with pace. The, the split cuts they do, that doesn't work if you're kind of walking it up and, and just getting that one screen and you need to get a shot off w- within four or five seconds. You're just going to get bogged down. And I, I think that is part of the learning curve, right? Is mm-hmm. young players having confidence to execute with pace even in close late games. Because even dating back to the playing game against Atlanta, the Cavs were out and running, bombing away on the Hawks. And then as the game got tight and, oh, the clock's our friends, so, you know, let's kind of milk it down. Let's slow things down. That's what ultimately did them in in that game. And I, I think that's part of the learning curve. So I don't think having another high usage guard is something that is hard for Garland to deal with because he had that with Colin Sexton and they would both have success alongside one another. But I do think when it comes down to kind of the late game execution, the hierarchy, like figuring out who's going to get touches in those spots, playing with the pace necessary to to make this offense work. I think that those are the kind of things that are going to take some time to kind of suss out. That makes sense. And Now's a good time to talk about Evan Mobley, who's uh, the franchise cornerstone. We love him because he's a USC guy, but also just what's not to love about his game. Rarely do you see a guy who projects as a, a high-level NBA defensive player do it from the start. He was just already really good defensively. There was like no adjustment period needed, really, or at least not much on that end as a rookie. Now, He seems like he's even better as a second-year pro. His shooting has improved from the free-throw line, too. He's fouling a little bit more. I don't don't know if um, there's anything you've noticed about that, but I would love to hear you rave about how good he is, why, just what you've seen from him. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I feel like there's a learning curve while we're on the subject of learning curves. I think there's a learning curve for Cavs fans and analysts to figure out exactly like what to make of Evan Mobley and how to break him down because we're used to a dynamic point forward. We, we had that with LeBron. We're used to the dynamic water bug guards with, with Darius Garland, Kyrie Irving, uh, Donovan Mitchell, like all these guys kind of fit into that archetype. Having a guy like Evan Mobley where his impact transcends the box score, where it's just such great feel for the game. Like defensively, the instincts are like Draymond Green, right? With a a seven foot player, like he was fantastic on defense against the Warriors and his passing, like the way that he can act as an outlet and and that pressure release uh, when teams are trapping the guards and his vision and his understanding of what the right play is. 
it's so advanced for someone that that's just 21 years old and it's really really exciting and i think you're starting to see more and more flashes of the work he put in the offseason starting to pay dividends because he looks more fluid he, he's still going to need to add some strength he can get bumped off the ball a little bit too much but the the turnaround jumpers, his ability to to create to take guys off the dribble, like he's getting to the rim, starting at the three point line. Like uh, there there was the play that stood out in the Boston game where he had Jason Tatum on him, kind of got by Tatum. Derek White switches onto him, he does a spin move and finishes at the rim. Like that that's absurd. Like you expect he's still years and years and years away from his prime. Like I, I'd say like five years away from entering his prime because. 26 is usually when it starts to happen for these guys. And I I think sometimes because he's so far ahead of the curve, you're like, okay, where's that leap to superstardom? But especially on a team with this much offensive talent, it really allows him to kind of play team basketball, to play within the flow of the game. And those flashes, like every time you start to see it, it becomes a little more exciting. And he got off to a slow start in the year. Uh, obviously, missing preseason was not <laughs> advantageous to him. I think it took him a few games to start to, you know, get back into basketball shape. But he, ever since basically the Orlando Magic game, he, he's been really, really good. And it's exciting to see those flashes become a little more frequent. Like mm-hmm. I, what I want to see is those kind of 20 point outings instead of being once every four games, every other game, you know, like just. What I want to see over the course of a season is those high watermarks to become more and more frequent. And that's a really good sign how high your expectations are for a guy who's just starting his second season in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Another special thing about this team that um, is going to be fun to talk about is Kevin Love. He survived the rebuild. He's still there (laughs) against the odds. And he's just putting fourth one hell of a start to the season his per 36 just ridiculous 21 points 13.4 rebounds 4.4 assists all while shooting 41 percent from three it's just a joy to see him still in cleveland and contributing on such a high level what does he do off the bench for this team um he Besides is everything. such yeah, besides everything, but he's such a steadying force, right? Like, I, I think it's not a coincidence that he, he's got the best plus minus on the team, the best on off, because, you know, like when the inexperience comes through, having a veteran that is able to knock down shots, make the right pass, make the right play, he's a steadying presence. Like, it's so different than what you see with most teams, right? Like, most teams kind of have a core of veterans and you have young guys that are, are learning alongside it. The Cavs kind of have the inverse where everything is put on the young guys to, to kind of shoulder the load. But then you have a few vets that you can cycle in. And I, I'm especially excited uh, for when Ricky Rubio is back, because I, I think having both Kevin Love and Ricky Rubio as kind of those steadying veterans that you can mix in with the lineup is going to make things so easy. And I think that's one of the biggest differences when you look at the Cavs rebuild the first time LeBron left versus this time is they really understand the value of having good locker room presence, having veterans out there, like having Robin Lopez to mentor Jared Allen on, you know, setting screens, the little hook shots. Every time Allen hits a hook shot now, he points at the bench uh, to to Robin Lopez. You have Kevin Love out there to, to help mentor those guys. You have Ricky Rubio in the ears of Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, uh, helping them, like, you know, break things down in film rooms. 
and really work through stuff like that to me is such an underrated aspect of player development and that honestly i think the league is getting better at that overall like i I think even the utah jazz like they understand hey is it really worth getting rid of all of our veterans if that means the young guys we care about and we want to see develop are developing bad habits because there's nobody in their ear there's nobody to take some pressure off of them and keep them in a manageable role and gradually give more responsibility to them as they get better and i I think having someone like kevin love that you know can carry those bench lineups that that can be that good presence on the team like it's so refreshing to see especially with how bleak it got at times god i forget who made the comparison but they said basically like Kevin Love's locker room presence is now like Channing Fry, where he's just the guy keeping it light. He's making things fun. And that kind of locker room presence helps you get through the marathon of an 82 game season. That Sunday game against the Knicks a couple weeks ago, he just went supernova. That was so exciting to see. (laughs) I think he and Mitchell combined for 67 and 16 threes. Each of them were eight of 13 from deep. It, it was just bananas. it's just normal stuff right like yeah it's just, it's, yeah just a typical sunday <laughs> against the knicks if you would have told 2015 me that kevin love or let's go back five years let's go back to the last time i was on this podcast that that kevin love was going to outlast Kyrie, he's going to outlast lebron he also outlast larry nance jr who you know the local kid that was basically brought into kind of secede uh, <laughs> uh take over that spot larry markinen uh, also brought in to to take uh, Kevin Love's job, basically, and, and he outlasted him, outlasted Colin Sexton. Like it's unbelievable that this is the route it went. But now it's at a point where he, he's saying like this is the most fun he's had in his career. Like he he's in a great situation. That this is a team that um, has goals of contending again in the very near future. I wouldn't be surprised if he re-ups in Cleveland. Like wh- whether it's a mid-level exception or whatever the deal is. Like. Uh, just continuing to be that guy because I think this is what they had in mind when they extended him after LeBron is this is a game that's probably going to age well and if we're going to have dynamic guards and guys that want to get to the rim having a floor spacer that can pass is such a difference maker yeah stay tuned we'll be right back with more show NBA fans, the NBA action is just getting started, and so are the incredible offers at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can make any $5 NBA pregame Moneyline bet and get $200 in free bets if your team wins. Check this out. Right now, everyone can earn up to a 100% boost with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place a same-game parlay, and combine multiple bets like which team will win, how many total rebounds in the game, the total points scored, and much more. With payouts bigger than ever, DraftKings Sportsbook is where you want to go to bet on the NBA. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code TBPN, make any $5 bet this week, and get $200 in free bets if your team wins. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with promo code TBPN. PN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Hey, this is John Corrales from the Lockdown Celtics podcast and Boston Sports Journal, and you are listening to On the NBA Beat. 
continuing our discussion on leadership, JB Bickerstaff has done a really good job coaching this team. He's only won one playoff game ever as an NBA head coach, but he hasn't really had that many opportunities. I'm wondering why or why not you think that he is the right coach to take these young Cavaliers finally to the playoffs and hopefully to advance around or to it's been 25 years since the Cavs made the playoffs with LeBron, which is hard to remember sometimes, at least from an outsider's perspective. <laughs> but um, what's your take on Bakerstaff and um, his future in Cleveland? Yeah, I, I think he's absolutely the right coach uh, for the Cavs right now because everyone seems to buy in. Like, that's the biggest thing is even if your plan isn't bulletproof, like even if there's flaws in your game plan and all that, whether or not the team's actually buying in and executing that game plan, that helps you assess whether or not it is a good game plan, right? Or, or if there are adjustments that need to be made. And the fact that, you know, Karis LeVert is playing unselfish team basketball and contributing on defense. Donovan Mitchell is buying into the system. Like, the offense continues to evolve as they add more talent. And you, you can see, like, these guys are, are riding for him. To me, that is what you want to see from a coach. Because I think too frequently... We think of coaches as static commodities, that it, they're either a good or bad coach. Uh, like They basically have a rating like in, in 2K, and that's what they are. No, they are just like players where they can have good and bad games. They can learn from experiences or they cannot learn from experiences. Uh, they can be malleable in their game plans and, and their basketball philosophies, or they can be strident with it, right? And I think J.B. Bickerstaff, this year is, is the year we're learning probably the most about him because... When he was in interim in Houston, they led the league in three-point rate. It was an above-average rate even in today's game. Uh, the, the rate was so high. Then you go to Memphis, and all of a sudden, the narrative around Bickerstaff is he's allergic to shooting threes, and he refuses to play young players. Again, that's an interim situation. And often, like the decisions on who gets to play... That can be dictated from the front office. And Memphis's uh, mentality at that time was, hey... We want to shop our older veterans because we're looking to do kind of a rebuild on the fly. And sure enough, he, he goes to Cleveland and Memphis actually starts taking fewer threes after he leaves, which is hilarious, even though the, the team got better. But he goes to Cleveland and everyone says he's allergic to threes and he's not going to play young guys. Plays a ton of young guys. And now that there's more talent, you're starting to see more three point attempts. We saw last year, uh, one of the most encouraging things about last season was when they started it was equal opportunity ball movement offense, right? Like you had Ricky Rubio, Sexton, Garland, all these guys kind of creating. It was a free-flowing offense. Then Sexton goes down. It's still free-flowing, but it's Garland and Rubio, and now we're incorporating the bigs a little bit more. Rubio goes down. Okay, well, now we don't have anybody that can dribble outside of Darius Garland, so we're going to adapt the offense again to a more heliocentric offense. And, and all three of those uh, iterations of the Cavs worked well. January was actually their best month after Rubio went down from a record standpoint. It's just at the end of January, Garland started having back issues. Larry Markkinen goes down. By the time Garland comes back, you trade for Karis LeVert and he misses a month. Then you lose Dean Wade for the season. You lose Jared Allen. You lose uh, Evan Mobley. Uh, you lost Rondo, who you brought in to, to bring it back. So everything fell apart. But the fact that he was able to adapt the game plan on the fly throughout the regular season and find success with multiple styles, to me, that's indicative of a head coach that's 
willing to adjust that that uh is willing to to try to figure out what's going to work and all who knows like long term you, you never know if a coach in, in a group of players if the the voice uh grows stale or or if you run into a ceiling but as long as the team is bought in that adjustments are being made that that you're learning from all of these games that's the kind of stuff to me that kind of it's informative on whether or not the coach you have at the moment is the right coach for this group. And just on an unrelated note, apparently I misspoke a little earlier. I think both of you guys understood what I meant. LeBron, the, the, the LeBron part with, yeah, yeah. With, but I meant without. <laughs> so, yes. um, but anyway, just following up on Baker's staff, I did want to ask about his lineup tinkering and um, what you've seen so far on the young season as he still tries to figure out something that works. Yeah. I, Personally, I would like to see them go a little deeper in the rotation. Uh, obviously, like I, I said before, I, I got questions about uh, Nettle's availability because if he is available, I would have liked to have seen him in these last couple games. Um, in terms of depth, I, I do think like th- this is a situation where this team would obviously benefit from having another wing that could play, uh, especially when Okoro's going through the slump. Um, you play against the Clippers, and that's not really a matchup where you can use Robin Lopez because the Clippers don't have a backup center, and you have a, a, one of the Morai out there uh, playing backup five, stretching it out. So um, I, I would like to see the minutes uh, a little more evenly distributed, but overall, I, I think he's done a good job. You, you look... And their best quarters are the third quarter and the fourth quarter. And to me, that's indicative of, of a team that understands what adjustments need to be made and is going out there and executing. That's a good sign. Yeah. And speaking about the depth chart at the wing specifically, post-trade last season, it seemed like uh, sometimes the Cavs were using Karis LeVert as sort of that super sub type of guy now this season at least it seems like he's solidified his starting position obviously as we talked about dean wade unavailable for the warriors game and okoro having his offensive struggles but when everyone's available do you think that is where karis levert fits in best uh, alongside the starters rather than um being the offensive lead of that bench unit I mean, from a, a basketball philosophy standpoint, I probably would have leaned towards starting Dean Wade. But I, I do think in, in analysis, sometimes we fall in love with archetypes over talent. And like, if Dean Wade is going to be the starting small forward for this team, he's got to go out and earn it. And, and he hasn't had a great November. Um, he, he was out against the Warriors with knee soreness. I don't know if that's been a, a lingering issue for him. But I, I think ultimately I, I would prefer Karis LeVert as a kind of ball handler off the bench. Like I think that makes staggering Garland and Mitchell a little easier as well. Uh, I, I just think you can have a more balanced attack. And uh, I think Dean Wade kind of lets you replicate what you had with Larry Markkinen with the, that Wade-Mobley-Allen lineup. Um, he, he's a much better defender than Larry is as well. So um, not Not the same shooter, but I like that as a look. I do think you're probably going to see more run with that starting group for a while to to see if it can work because really they played five games together one of them garland got taken out in the second quarter um and now two of them uh garland was sick for so i I think you're you're going to see hey is this something that can work are we able to find a rhythm with this group because right now karis levert is outplaying 
all the other options. But I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point they tinker and and give another look. I wouldn't be surprised just given Levert's injury history that he misses some time. They use a different lineup. That lineup works and JB doesn't want to mess with that chemistry. Uh, none of that would shock me. Um, but I, I think ultimately you would like to have a more traditional small forward. Like I, I would kill to have Harrison Barnes on this team somehow. That would be the perfect guy to slot in at small forward. And maybe that's an opportunity that's available at the deadline. But for now, I, I do think uh, Karras earned it throughout the preseason. And until someone comes out and, and takes that spot from him, you kind of have to honor whoever is playing the best out of that group. Yeah, and I suppose even a guy like Jetty is playing pretty well off the bench. Um, I mean, obviously not exactly the same position, but having a lot of that style of playmaking wing responsibilities. Levert's other competition for that starting small forward spot, um, a guy that we've mentioned in passing a lot during this episode, Isaac Okoro, he looked really strong in his first two seasons with the Cavs. Um, but this season, as we've mentioned, his minutes are way down compared to his rookie and sophomore years, where he was averaging around or more than 30 minutes per game each of those seasons. Um, but he's been really struggling. I mean, he's never been known for his offensive presence, mm-hmm. I would say. He's more made his made his mark as a defender, but it's to an even higher level this season. Again, his minutes have been almost cut in half. He's been failing to get in any sort of offensive rhythm. How does he get out of that slump and... Um, how does he get into more of a groove with the Cavs? Yeah, I, I don't know how to get out of a slump. Like that, that's obviously one of the, the, the toughest questions out there. But uh, to me, what kind of jumps out is he redid his shot in the offseason. And uh, after December of last year, he shot over 40% from three. Uh, he was around 50% from the field. And it was at low volume, but he could still knock down those open shots. And I think now... Now that you have Karis LeVert more established, now that you have some of these other guys that have been playing well, it makes it tougher. Like there's a bit of a minutes crunch. So I, I think he's out there pressing and it's you're always going to have an adjustment period when you change your form. But it, it seems like he's in his own head. Uh, one thing I would advocate for is kind of a, a more defined rotation for at least the first three quarters, because what we're seeing right now is like he may have a five minute stretch in the first quarter. And if the shot doesn't fall, he might not play again during the game. And I just don't think that that's conducive to to getting a guy back on track. I can understand, you know, fourth quarter, you're going to ride the hot hand. You're going to work with whatever lineup is working. But at least through the first three quarters, I'd like to see more of kind of a an established rotation where, you know, uh, win, lose, or draw, whether you make your shots or, or miss them, we're going to continue to give you steady minutes and a steady role and see if that helps him get back on track. I'd like to see more minutes with Darius Garland. Uh, I, I know when they like to stagger uh, Garland and Mitchell as well as Mobley and Allen, it's usually Mitchell and Allen and Garland and Mobley. I'd like to see Okoro in that mix with Garland and, and uh, Mobley, maybe even have Karis LeVert in there so there, there's some ball handling around him and, and utilize what he can do as a cutter and see if that helps get him going. But right now, it just seems like he's in his own head. But really for the Cavs, like until Ricky Rubio comes back, I think you have to keep giving these opportunities to Okoro and, and try to get him on the right track because you have to pay a premium if you're bringing in a wing from outside. 
And when you have a guy that is really only like two months older than Evan Mobley, he's a really young player still, and, and he is a good defensive player. When you have something like that, I think you you owe it to yourself, especially when you don't necessarily have championship aspirations for this season. You owe it to yourself to to really kind of explore this as an option and try to get him back on track rather than, you know, just looking for a stopgap solution. Last question before we let you go, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us again today and spending so much time with us. Last season, Garland and Allen made their first all-star appearances, respectively. Um, This season, it seems already like Donovan Mitchell is probably looking like a lock for the all-star game. He's going back to Utah. (laughs) Yep. Who else do you think might have a case to join him? Garland and Allen maybe again, and or Allen, I mean, or Evan Mobley possibly? Right now, power rankings for likelihood, I'd probably go Mitchell, Garland, Allen. I think Allen's been a little bit better than Mobley, although Mobley's starting to come on strong these last few games, so I, I can see that easily flipping. I think how many they're going to get, that's likely going to be determined by where they are in the standings, right? Like the the league is so deep right now. I have a hard time envisioning uh, three uh, or more than three, I should say. Uh, I think three would be your best case scenario if you're like the one or two seed. But right now, I'd probably say the guards are are most likely to make it. But, you know, if if it comes to February and the Cavs are still like top two defensively and Mobley's offensive growth continues, it's going to be kind of hard to ignore that. It's one of those situations where I wouldn't be surprised to see him as the third, but I think Jared Allen is one of the the better centers in the league right now. And I think he often gets overlooked as someone that's just 24 years old as someone that still has some upside ahead of him. Yeah, obviously a lot of, competition in the front court of the eastern conference too with yeah. you know Giannis and Bede however you characterize the Jays in Boston Butler <laughs> but we'll see how it goes um thank you again Justin for joining us today it's been a pleasure speaking with you as always uh hopefully it's not another five and a half years until we get you on again yeah and, and next be. time we'll feel make f- sure it's not yeah next time feel free to invite me like during a lo- uh, winning streak or whatever like i I'm, I'm i'm game for that it doesn't have to be after a losing streak okay guys but well when we invited you it was a w- winning streak that's that's true okay so you know what maybe we're not don't helping invite our case me. yeah i was gonna say they were eight and one possibly when i reached out maybe eight and two and now they're eight and four so on the nba beat jinx strikes again but um it's not always going to be this way. You, you, you hate to see it, but you know what? I, it's it's still a pleasure to be on with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks Likewise, a lot. Thank you. Huge thanks again to Justin Rowan for joining us today. Once again, you can find more from Justin by following him at CavsAnada on Twitter and by listening to the Chase Down podcast. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Lauren Lee Chen, and Aaron Fishman, whom you can follow on Twitter at Lauren L. Chen and at ByAaronFish, respectively. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe for more episodes by searching On the NBA Beat wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, it'd be much appreciated if you dropped a five-star rating and review while you're there. On the NBA Beat is part of the Basketball Podcast Network.